The reading this evening is from Luke chapter 19, verses, verse 28 to chapter 20, verse 8. And it can be found on page 1054 of the Church Bibles. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're looking at the last section of Luke's gospel. Um, we, tend to do Luke, we tend to do a gospel at this time of the year in the evening. And um, if we do Mark, it only takes sort of, you know, two goes, two, two turns. But if we do Luke, it takes five. The same with Matthew, they're more than twice as long as Luke. But we just do one section each year. And we've got to the end of Luke. And actually, it's really mostly the last week of Jesus' life on earth. There's a bit about his resurrection and that time when he teaches the disciples over six weeks before he ascends. So particular welcome if you happen to be a newbie for Unite Plus. Good to have you. 
And so we're looking, first of all, at three days, you know, Sunday, Monday and Tuesday, that last week leading up to Good Friday and then Easter Sunday. And on the Sunday, they have this triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the religious leaders try to get Jesus to kind of dampen down the enthusiastic expectations of his disciples. But Jesus takes time out and he weeps over the city because he knows that his people will reject their Messiah, their Christ, and so miss out, and eventually they will receive their due judgment. Then the next day on the Monday, he clears out the temple and the religious leaders plot to destroy him. On Tuesday, his authority is challenged by those religious leaders, hoping no doubt to get him to blaspheme kind of very explicitly so they can basically do away with him. But just to get a bit of um, geographical kind of bearings, Jesus and his entourage of disciples, critics and the curious, they've been on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. They've come down from the Galilee, down the Jordan. They've been to Jericho and they leave Jericho. Jericho to Jerusalem is 23 miles, almost a marathon. But it's a considerably tougher journey, I'd suggest, than a marathon because it involves a 3,000-foot ascent from the Dead Sea to the Judean mountain range. Jericho is 600 feet or so below sea level and Jerusalem is 2,300 feet above sea level and there's virtually no water between the two. It's just the most incredibly arid desert you can find. In the winter, although they're only 23 miles apart, you could have snow in Jerusalem and you could have 70 Fahrenheit or so in Jericho. Of course, in the summer, not that they were doing it in the summer, they were doing it around about this time of the year, it can be well into the 40 Celsius in the Jericho Dead Sea area. Now, you'd sweat... So it's a tough little journey for them at, any, at this particular time. And they go up to Jerusalem, which is on a hill, Mount Zion. And to the east of Jerusalem, there is the Mount of Olives. That's usually from where you get folk pictures today of the, the two mosques which are on the Temple Mount today. In between, there's the Kidron Valley. But over the other side of the Mount of Olives, there is the view right across to the Dead Sea. And just below the top of the Mount of Olives is where you find these two villages which are mentioned, Bethany and Bethphage. And so, they'll have come up from Jericho, they'll have gone through Bethany and Bethphage, they've gone over the top of the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley, up to Jerusalem. And there they would have seen the temple. The temple would be at least as big as the Sun Life of Canada building, the glass building out there. It's massive. You know, it would have been, it isn't there today, but it, it, um, it would have been massive. It was a phenomenal achievement to build those things. So, the triumphal entry. Before he sets off, he needs some transport. So he dispatches, verse 32, of his disciples to go to the next village, where, he says, they will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, he says, and bring it here. 
If anyone asks you why you are untying it, say, the Lord needs it. And they do just that. And the person they get it off lets them take it. Now, whether that's down to Jesus' foreknowledge or some earlier arrangement, we don't know. But what's so special about mentioning getting a cult, you might say? If we were retelling the story today, we might just sort of think it fits into the category of uh, where you got the hire car from or what number bus you caught. But you see, everything Jesus does has been planned. It has been thought out in advance. And in this case, you go back 550 years to see where it was uh, planned in advance. 520 BC, um, that is kind of 20 years after the Jews had gone back to Jerusalem from being in exile in Babylon, and uh, nothing was happening. Only the foundations of the temple had started to be rebuilt, and the walls had not been anywhere near completed. And the Persians, who were more benevolent than the Babylonians, taxed them, though, much more heavily because the Persians needed the loot to be able to fight the Egyptians. So the poor old Jews back in Jerusalem were pretty depressed. Their hopes of restoration showed no signs of being fulfilled. And in those days, there was a prophet called Zechariah. And uh, he had prophecies of encouragement, such as this one from chapter 9 of his book, for the coming of Zion's king, Jerusalem's king. He says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what Jesus is doing is he's taking this prophecy of, Jer- of, um, of Zacharias, 550 years before, and he self-consciously sees himself as the king coming to Jerusalem. It's a way of saying God has heard the cries of his people. And the anointed king, Messiah in Hebrew or Christos in Greek, has arrived. He is righteous, unlike all their earlier kings who disappointed them. And he is humble in following God's plan. And that's indicated by the mode of transport. It's not a great white charger, a stallion. It's a donkey. And that's pretty kind of low level. It's the equivalent of... um, well, you can imagine the range of cars, aren't you, really, from what you'd expect the Queen to be in and what uh, somebody who's uh, just passed their test is likely to have acquired. So, the crowd um, he had with him, together with the crowds that he encountered on the way, thought something significant was going to happen. Verse 36. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. That's symbolic of their submission to Jesus. I mean, if you're going to put your cloak down for somebody, say, trample on that, that's fine. You know, you are submitting to their superior um, status. And the palm branches, they were the traditional way in which the Jews celebrated any kind of victory. And they waved them around, we learn from Matthew's account. 
And this was the first day of Passover week. And Passover was their commemoration, you remember, of their liberation from living under the Egyptians 1,300 years before. And now the expectation that the people have is that they're going to be delivered from under Roman rule. However, as we'll see, the defeat that week was not of the Romans, but actually of Satan, sin and death. Satan would not be able to successfully tempt Jesus off his perfect pathway. And Satan, as a consequence, would not then be able to ensure that human beings would be forever trapped in sin and condemned to die. Yes, they'd die physically, but they wouldn't experience a second death, an eternal death, because of what Jesus would achieve on that first weekend. And this was because Jesus would die for their sins. He'd suffer the punishment that they deserved. So they could be liberated from the penalty of sin. And furthermore, united with Christ, they too could break through the death barrier and look forward to the resurrection to eternal life. One day, though, all the enemies will see the Messiah in victory, but not yet. That would have to await his second coming. Verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The expectation in the Old Testament had been of a coming king who would fulfill the prophecy, which goes back even further than Zechariah. It goes back to the days of Jacob, who was one of the patriarchs around 1900 years BC in Genesis 49, a prediction of a kingly descendant of Judah whose rule of peace would extend not just to his own people but to all the nations. Now the religious leaders in Jerusalem do not like this rival pitching up. They don't like the look of what seems to be happening. They fear what we might call today popularism. They've got this young rabbi from the north and he has attracted a massive crowd and they want him to dampen down the enthusiasm of his followers. They think they're claiming too much for Jesus. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Next, we see Jesus weeps over the city, verse 41. He's sitting up on the Mount of Olives and he's looking down at it. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. This was the day for the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Yes, in two stages, but still the first day of the kingdom of God to bring people from the nations together in peace, something that had been expected for years. Now their rejection of him had been predicted also long before, 700 years before in Isaiah 53, where the Messiah 
though rejected by the people, will in fact be exalted by God. So for them, based on all the evidence that they've either seen of or heard of, the miracles that Jesus did, the teaching that had a ring of truth and a sense of authority about it, the character of Jesus' own life, the fulfilment of these Old Testament prophecies. We've just heard a couple of them, but there are probably five or six hundred. The people had enough evidence that they should have believed and recognised that the king had come. But each time they chose to resist the evidence before their eyes. And so their hearts become hardened. Just like in the days of the liberation from Egypt, Pharaoh's heart became hardened as each time he resisted Moses while God was speaking to these people. But they moved further and further away from God. And their future is judgment, Jesus says. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Now what is this prediction that Jesus is referring to? Well he's not referring to the final judgment of the world, rather he's predicting a more immediate judgment on Jerusalem and on the so-called nation of Israel for its refusal to accept him, God's own son, as their Messiah. And that judgment took about another 35, 40 years before It was implemented, and it was in AD 66, 35 years after Jesus, 30 to 35 years after Jesus was killed. The Jews rebelled against the Romans. The Romans do not like people rebelling against them, and they besieged Jerusalem, conquered it, and systematically destroyed it. And so thoroughly was Jerusalem destroyed that Josephus, who was um, a first century Jewish historian and who witnessed the events, wrote, no one would ever believe that that spot had been inhabited. There's just a bit of the wall and three towers that were deliberately left by the Romans. Josephus says, to reveal to posterity how great the city of Jerusalem had been And to show, of course, as a warning, the scale of the Romans' destruction against those who rebel against them. So it's now Monday and he clears out the temple, verse 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now what is Jesus accusing the Jews of here? Well it might be that he's attacking the Jewish religious leaders like um, Annas who had been a high priest and made a right packet out of flogging um, uh, little sacrifices at exorbitant prices. You know, it's a lucrative business. 
But I think the context has a better explanation. There are two quotes from Jesus, one from Isaiah 56 and one from Jeremiah 7. The context of the Isaiah one is that God's temple is for anyone from any nation, as long as they have truly come to belong to God. And the context of the Jeremiah one is that the Jews are warned that they cannot presume on having God's temple among them if they continue to rebel against him. God will destroy them and their temple. So Jesus' actions and words are both the general accusation of rebellion against God, but also a prediction of judgment. Israel and her religion are, as far as Jesus is concerned, not fit for purpose. They're not fit to have the presence of God represented by his temple in them, in their city, because they're not fulfilling their part of the deal, of the covenant. They're not worthy of it. And that interpretation fits in well with what we'll hear next week in uh, the parable of the tenants. And again, the religious establishment do not like this. They are really getting wound up and they're moving in their minds, not just from getting to sort of shut the crowd down, but also to eliminate Jesus. 47, every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. And then the next day, Tuesday, Jesus' authority is questioned, verse chapter 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? So they either had priestly authority, in other words, they carried out all the rituals in the temple, or they had scribal authority. They were the lawyers. They were the ones who did the teaching. Jesus, of course, from their perspective, perspective, had neither of those qualifications. He just had his personal charisma. He replied, I will ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? And they discussed it amongst themselves, we read, and they said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. Jesus was pretty smart. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. By John's baptism, he probably um, isn't thinking of the fact that John baptised Jesus, because most people wouldn't know that. He's probably talking about John's baptism for all the people in general. However, even John's general baptism vindicates Jesus. The Jews objected to Jesus' attack on their behaviour and his warning of judgement, but by saying that the Messiah would judge the sinful people, as he does in chapter 3, for example, John was predicting precisely this. 
So there are four incidents and four points of application for us to take away, to think, hmm, yeah, what should I do as a consequence? First of all, these people should have recognised Jesus as their king. The evidence for Jesus as being the Christ had been accumulating. The predictions from hundreds of years before were coming to be fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus before their very eyes. Jesus performed astonishing miracles. They heard his teaching which made sense and came with such authority. They examined his life and even his opponents couldn't find any fault with him. They should have seen that the mission that God had predicted years and years before was actually happening before their eyes. They should have recognised him. But the barrier was not so much intellectual as moral. They didn't want to submit to Jesus as their king. Now, if you've been coming along to St Mary's for quite a while, and if you weren't a Christian when you started coming, you might be in a position where you've acquired more and more information and the evidence for Jesus being God is stacking up. And of course there's always more to learn but have you learnt enough to be in a position to recognise him as your personal king? Do you genuinely need to know more or are you using that to hold yourself back because you don't want to make that personal surrender which might need you to change how you're living? It is vital to be honest with ourselves. Secondly, Jesus wept. He wept, wept because he knew that they'd had their chance and they were in the process of blowing it. If only they'd recognised who he was, they would have begun to realise what it was that he'd come to do. They would have seen the salvation brought before their eyes. And they did not. And Jesus knew that rejecting God and his Messiah would mean their rejection by God and his judgment on them. Destruction would come and it would be total. And it was. Well, if he got it right then, and it happened, he's pretty likely to have got right all the things which are yet to come, which he has predicted, is he not? Then there's the cleansing of the temple. They thought they were safe because they had the temple, the presence of God in Jerusalem, but they'd forgotten the warnings also given at the same time that prophets like Jeremiah spoke of the benefits of being in this relationship with God, this covenant relationship. And in Jeremiah 7, they're conditional. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things, 
Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. Now, in Jeremiah's time, that was fulfilled when the Babylonians invaded. They did destroy the temple, they did destroy the city, and they carted off most of the inhabitants into captivity. We today do have to engage ourselves in rigorous self-examination to check that we are genuine professors who, yes, commit one-off sins that can be forgiven, but we have to check that we're not phony professors of the Christian faith. I don't mean professors in the academic sense, I mean professors in the sense that we're professing that that's what we believe. Rather than the phony professors constantly sinning and set on a trajectory that leads to our own judgment. And finally the question of authority. How do you determine what is right and wrong, what is true and false? In the, really, there are only two choices. There is what the church in the last 2,000 years has regarded as the traditional way. That is to recognise that scripture is the supreme authority, which we have to understand with our God-given rational minds, but so as not to go off onto our own flights of fantasies, into some kind of erroneous cul-de-sac, we have to discuss with other Christians, both in the present and also in the past through their readings. That's the wider church. That is, if you like, tradition. And that will um, include the church down the, the ages. In other words, if we have the Bible here, then we put it there, and we sit and live under it. But we use our God-given minds to understand it, and we discuss it with each other. And that's where we discover how to understand it properly and how to apply it. The erroneous way is to see scripture as a primary source of authority in the chronological sense that it came first. It is the raw materials. You could say you were a Bible-based church But unless it's the supreme source, we will uh, depart from its message. But if we claim to follow Jesus, we have to follow his attitude towards the scriptures, shouldn't we? That would be a consistent Christian thing to do, wouldn't it? I'm a Christian, I follow Christ, I should follow him in his attitude to scripture. And so what would Jesus do when he came into these debates with the religious leaders of his day? Well, he would ask them, what does scripture say? 
what is written. Whether it was in resisting the temptation in the wilderness of the devil, whether it was in debate with the religious leaders of his day, or whether for him it was in determining what God's mission for him was on earth. And each time, in each context, the matter was settled by what God had said in Scripture. Now, of course, people in different ways try to sort of fuzz things up today by misusing, you know, the Holy Spirit, if you like. They would say, what is the Holy Spirit saying to the church today? As if he could be saying something different than he's already said when he inspired the prophets and the the apostles who created the Bible for us. That, of course, isn't the way. The Spirit of God who inspired the Word of God and the Word of God, they don't contradict one another. God is the same yesterday, today and forever. His truth does not change. He's the epitome of the consistent performer. We are not at liberty as Christians to depart from Scripture, whether it's in our thinking or whether it's in our lifestyle. Our minds are captive to the word of God. And so we need to ask ourselves whether not only do we recognise his authority, but whether we submit to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that in many ways we think we are, we know better than you and we're foolish people, and we learn the hard way. We pray that like the Jews of Jeremiah's day and the Jews of Jesus' day, we would not learn the hard way. We might see the lessons and see the clear teaching of Jesus and know how to follow him in his way. For our eternal salvation, we pray. Amen.